Section 10 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 10. Chapter 3. Constantine's Successors to Jovian and the Struggle with Persia by Norman H. Baines. Innumerable have been the explanations which men have offered for the apostasy of Julian. They have pointed to his Arian teachers, have suggested that Christianity was hateful to him as the religion of Constantius, whom he regarded as his father's murderer, while rationalists have paradoxically claimed that the emperor's reason refused to accept the miraculous origin and the subtle theologies of the faith. It would be truer to say that Christianity was not miraculous enough, was too rational for the mystic and enthusiast. The religion which had as its central object of adoration the cult of a dead man was to him human all too human. His vague longings after some vast imaginative conception of the universe felt themselves cabined and confined in the creeds of Christianity. With a Roman's pride and a Roman's loyalty to the past as he conceived it, the upstart faith of despised Galilean peasants aroused at one moment his scorn, at another his pity. A Greek by education and literary sympathies, the Christian Bible was but a faint and distorted reflex of the masterpieces which had comforted his solitary youth a mystic who felt the wonder of the expanse of the heavens with a strain in his nature to which the ritual excesses of the Orient appealed with irresistible fascination. It was easy for him to adopt the speculations of Neoplatonism and to fall a victim to the thaumaturgy of Maximus. The causes of Julian's apostasy lie deep-rooted in the apostate's inmost being. His first acts declared his policy. He ordered the temples to be opened and the public sacrifices to be revived. But the Christians were free to worship, for Julian had learned the lesson of the failure of previous persecutions, and by imperial order all the Catholic bishops banished under Constantius were permitted to return. Those privileges, however, which the state had granted to the churches were now to be withdrawn. Lands and temples which had belonged to the older religion were to be surrendered to their owners, the Christian clergy were no longer to claim exemption from the common liability to taxation or from duties owed to the municipal senates. With Julian's accession, Christianity had ceased to be the favoured religion, and it was therefore contended that reason demanded alike restitution and equality before the law. Meanwhile, a court was sitting at Chalcedon to try the partisans of Constantius. Its nominal president was Sallust, probably Julian's friend when in Gaul, but the commission was in reality controlled by Abitio, an unprincipled creature of Constantius. Julian may perhaps have intended to show impartiality by such a choice, but as a result justice was travestied, and though public opinion approved of the deaths of Paul the notary and of Apodemius, who were principally responsible for the excesses committed in the treason trials of the late reign, and may have welcomed the fate of the all-powerful Chamberlain Eusebius. Men were horror-struck at the execution of Ursulus, 
who as treasurer in Gaul had loyally supported Julian when Caesar. His unpopularity with the troops was indeed his only crime, and the emperor did not mend his error by raising the weak plea that he had been kept in ignorance of the sentence. Julian's next step was the summary dismissal of the horde of minor officials of the palace who had served to make the court circle under Constantius a very hotbed of vice and corruption. The purge was sudden and indiscriminate. It was the act of a young man in a hurry. The feverish ardour of the emperor's reforming energy swept before it alike the innocent and the guilty. Such impatience appeared unworthy of a philosopher, and so far from awaking gratitude in his subjects, served rather to arouse discontent and alarm. But already Julian was burning to undertake his great expedition against Persia, and refused to listen to counsellors who suggested the folly of aggression, now that Sapor was no longer pressing the attack. The emperor's preparation could best be made in Antioch, and here he arrived probably in late July 363. On the way he had made a detour to visit Pessinus and Ansira. The lukewarm devotion of Galatia had discouraged him, but in Antioch, where lay the sanctuary of Daphne, he looked for earnest support in his crusade for the moral regeneration of paganism. The crown of the East, as Ammianus styles his native city, welcomed the emperor with open arms, but the enthusiasm was short-lived. The populace, gay, factious, pleasure-loving, looked for spectacles and the pomp of a court. Julian's heart was set on a civil and religious reformation. He longed for amendment in law and administration, above all for a remodelling of the old cult and the weaning of converts to the cause of the gods. He himself was to be the head of the new state church of paganism, the hierarchy of the Christians was to be adopted, the country priests subordinated to the high priest of the province, the high priest to be responsible to the emperor, the pontifex maximus. A new spirit was to inspire the pagan clergy. The priest himself was to be no longer a mere performer of public rites. Let him take up the work of preacher, expound the deeper sense which underlay the old mythology, and be at once shepherd of souls and an example to his flock in holy living. What Maximin Daza had attempted to achieve in ruder fashion by forged acts of Pilate, Julian's writings against the Galileans should effect. As Maximin had bidden cities ask what they would of his royal bounty, did they but petition that the Christians might be removed from their midst, so Julian was ready to assist and favour towns which were loyal to the old faith. Maximin had created a new priesthood, recruited from men who had won distinction in public careers. His dream had been to fashion an organisation which might successfully withstand the Christian clergy. Here too Julian was his disciple. When pest and famine had desolated the Roman East in Maximin's days, the helpfulness and liberality of Christians toward the starving and the plague-stricken had forced men to confess that true piety and religion had made their home with the persecuted heretics. It was Julian's will that paganism should boast its public charity and that an all-embracing service of humanity should be reasserted as a vital part of the ancient creed. If only the worshippers of the gods of Hellas were at once quickened with a spiritual enthusiasm, the lost ground would be recovered. It was indeed to this call that paganism could not respond. There were men who clung to the old belief, but theirs was no longer a victorious faith, for the fire had died upon the altar. Resignation to Christian intolerance was bitter, but the passion which inspires martyrs was nowhere to be found. 
Julian made converts, the Christian writers mournfully testify to their numbers, but he made them by imperial gold, by promises of advancement or fear of a dismissal. They were not the stuff of which missionaries could be fashioned. The citizens were disappointed of their pageants, while the royal enthusiast found his hopes to be illusions. Mutual embitterment was the natural result. Julian was never a persecutor in the accepted meaning of that word. It was the most constant complaint of the Christians that the emperor denied them the glory of martyrdom, but pagan mobs knew that the emperor would not be quick to punish violence inflicted on the Galileans. When the Alexandrians brutally murdered their tyrannous bishop, George of Cappadocia, they escaped with an admonition. When Julian wrote to his subjects of Bostra, it was to suggest that their bishop might be hunted from the town. If Pessinus was to receive a boon from the emperor, his counsel was that all their inhabitants should become worshippers of the Great Mother. If Nisibis needed protection from Persia, it would only be granted on condition that she changed her faith. In the schools throughout the empire, Christians were expounding the works of the great Greek masters. From their earliest years, children were taught to scorn the legends which to Julian were rich with spiritual meaning. He that would teach the scriptures must believe in them, and given the emperor's zealous faith, it was but reasonable that he should prohibit Christians from teaching the classic literature which was his Bible. If Ammianus criticised the edict severely, it was because he did not share the emperor's belief. The historian was a tolerant monotheist, Julian an ardent worshipper of the gods. The emperor's conservatism and love of sacrifice alike were stirred by the records of the Jews. A people who in the midst of adversity had clung with a passionate devotion to the adoration of the god of their fathers deserved well at his hands. Christian renegades should see the glories of a restored temple which might stand as an enduring monument of his reign. The architect Olypius planned the work but it was never completed. The earth at this time was troubled by strange upheavals, earthquakes and ocean waves, and by some such phenomenon Jerusalem would seem to have been visited. Perhaps during the excavations a well of naphtha was ignited. We only know that Christians who saw in Julian's plan a defiance of prophecy proclaimed a miracle, and that the emperor did not live to prove them mistaken. Thus in Antioch the relations between the sovereign and his people were growing woefully strained. Julian removed the bones of St. Babylas from the precinct of Daphne, and soon after the temple was burned to the ground. Suspicion fell upon the Christians, and their great church was closed. A scarcity of provisions made itself felt in the city, and Julian fixed the maximum price, and brought corn from Hierapolis and elsewhere, and sold it at reduced rates. It was bought up by the merchants, and the efforts to coerce the Senate failed. The populace ridiculed an emperor whose aims and character they did not understand. The philosopher would not stoop to violence, but the man in Julian could not hold his peace. The emperor descended from the awful isolation which Diocletian had imposed on his successors. He challenged the satirist to a duel of wits and published the Misobicon. It was to sacrifice his vantage ground. The chosen of heaven had become the jest of the mob and Julian's pride could have drained no bitterer cup. When he left the city for Persia, he had determined to fix his court upon his return at Tarsus, and neither the entreaties of Libanius nor the tardy repentance of Antioch availed to move him from his purpose. Here but the briefest outline can be given of the oft-told tale of Julian's Persian expedition. Before it, criticism sinks powerless, 
for it is a wonder story and we cannot solve its riddle. The leader perished and the rest is silence. With him was lost the secret of his hopes. Julian left Antioch on 5th March 363 and on the 9th reached Hierapolis. Here the army had been concentrated and four days later the emperor advanced at its head, crossed the Euphrates and passing through Batane, halted at Charae. The name must have awakened gloomy memories and the emperor's mind was troubled with premonitions of disaster. Men said that he had bidden his kinsman Procopius mount the throne should he himself fall in the campaign. A troop of Persian horse had just burst plundering across the frontier and returned laden with booty. This event led Julian to disclose his plan of campaign. Corn had been stored along the road towards the Tigris in order to create an impression that he had chosen that line for his advance. In fact, the emperor had determined to follow the Euphrates and strike for Satisiphon. He would thus be supported by his fleet, bearing supplies and engines of war. Procopius and Sebastianus he entrusted with 30,000 troops, almost half his army, and directed them to march towards the Tigris. They were, for the present, to act only on the defensive, shielding the eastern provinces from invasion and guarding his own forces from any Persian attack from the north. When he himself was once at grips with Persia in the heart of the enemy's territory, Sapor would be forced to concentrate his armies and then, the presence of Julian's generals being no longer necessary to protect Mesopotamia, should a favourable opportunity offer, they were to act in concert with Assasis, ravage Chiliocomum, a fertile district of Media, and advance through Corduene and Moxuene to join him in Assyria. That meeting never took place. From whatever reason, Procopius and Sebastianus never left Mesopotamia. Julian reviewed the united forces, 65,000 men, and then turned south, following the course of the Belias, Belecha, until he reached Kalinikum, Ar-Raka, on 27th March. Another day's march brought him to the Euphrates, and here he met the fleet under the command of the tribune Constantianus and the Count Lucilianus. Fifty warships, an equal number of boats designed to form pontoon bridges, and a thousand transports, the Roman armada seemed to an eyewitness fitly planned to match this magnificent stream on which it floated. Another ninety-eight miles brought the army to Diocletian's bulwark fortress of Circesium, Carcisia. Here the Abarus, Cabur, formed the frontier line. Julian harangued the troops, then crossed the river by a bridge of boats and began his march through Persian territory. In spite of omens and disregarding the gloomy auguries of the Etruscan soothsayers, the emperor set his face for Cetesiphon. He would storm high heaven by violence and bend the gods to his will. From its formation, the invading army was made to appear a countless host, for their marching column extended over some ten miles, while neither the fleet nor the land forces were suffered to lose touch with each other. Some of the enemy's forts capitulated, the inhabitants of Anatha being transported to Chalcis in Syria. Some were found deserted, while the garrisons of others refusing to surrender professed themselves willing to abide by the issue of the war. Julian was content to accept these terms and continued his unresting advance. Historians have blamed this rash confidence whereby he endangered his own retreat. It is, however, to be remembered that a siege in the fourth century might mean a delay of many weeks, that the emperor's project was clearly to dismay Persia by the rapidity of his onset, and that it would seem probable that his plan of campaign had been from the first to return by the Tigris, 
and not by the Euphrates. The Persians had intended a year or two before to leave walled cities untouched and strike for Syria. Julian, in his turn, refused to waste precious time in investing the enemy's strongholds, but would deal a blow against the capital itself. The march was attended with many difficulties. A storm swept down upon the camp, the swollen river burst its dams, and many transports were sunk. The passage of the Naraga was only forced by a successful attack on the Persian rear, which compelled them to evacuate their position in confusion. A mutinous and discontented spirit was shown by the Roman troops, and the emperor was forced to exert his personal influence and authority before discipline was restored. Finally, the Persians raised all the sluices, and, freeing the waters, turned the country which lay before the army into a widespread marsh. Difficulties, however, vanished before the resource and promptitude of the emperor, and the advance guard under Victor brought him news that the country up to the walls of Cetesiphon was clear of the enemy. On the fall of the strong fortress of Maezamalcha, the fleet followed the Nahamalcha, the great canal which united Euphrates and Tigris, while the army kept pace with it on land. The Nahamalcha, however, flows into the Tigris three miles below Cetesiphon, and thus the emperor would have been forced to propel his ships upstream in his attack on the capital. The difficulty was overcome by clearing the disused canal of Trajan, down which the fleet emerged into the Tigris to the north of Cetesiphon. From the triangle thus formed by the Nahamacha, the Tigris, and the canal of Trajan, Julian undertook the capture of the left bank of the river. Protected by a palisade, the Persians offered a stubborn resistance to the Roman night attack. The five ships first dispatched were repulsed and set on fire. On the moment, it is the signal that our men hold the bank, cried the emperor, and the whole fleet dashed to their comrades' support. Julian's inspiration won a field of battle for the Romans. Underneath the scorching sun, the armies fought until the Persians, elephants, cavalry and foot, were fleeing pell-mell for the shelter of the city walls. Their dead numbered some 2,500. Had the pursuit been pressed, Cetesiphon might perhaps have been won that day, but plunder and booty held the victors fast. Should the capital be besieged, or the march against Sapor begun? It would almost seem that Julian himself wavered irresolute while precious days were lost. Secret proposals of peace led him to underestimate the enemy's strength, while men playing the part of deserters offered to lead him through fertile districts against the main Persian army. Should he weary his forces and damp the spirit of his men by an arduous siege, he might not only be cut off from the reinforcements under Procopius and Sebastianus, but might find himself caught between two fires. Sapor's advance, and the resistance of the garrison. To conclude a peace were unworthy of one who took Alexander for his model, better with his victorious troops to strike a final and conclusive blow, and possibly before the encounter effect a junction with the northern army. Crews numerous enough to propel his fleet against the stream he could not spare, and if he were to meet Sapor he might be drawn too far from the river to act in concert with his ships. They must not fall into the enemy's hands, and therefore they must be burned. The resolution was taken and regretted too late. Twelve small boats alone were rescued from the flames. Julian's plans miscarried, for the army of the north remained inactive, perhaps through the mutual jealousy of its commanders, and Arsaces withheld his support from the foe of Sapor. The Persians burned their fields before his advance, and the rich countryside which traitorous guides had promised became a wilderness of ash and smoke. Orders were given for a retreat to Cordwina. Amidst sweltering heat, with dwindling stores, 
the Romans beheld to their dismay the cloud of dust upon the horizon which heralded Sir Paul's approach. At dawn the heavy-armed troops of Persia were close at hand, and only after many engagements were beaten off with loss. After a halt of two days at Hucumbra, where a supply of provisions was discovered, the army advanced over country which had been devastated by fire, while the troops were constantly harassed by sudden onsets. At Maranga, the Persians were once more reinforced. Two of the king's sons arrived at the head of an elephant column and squadrons of mailed cavalry. Julian drew up his forces in semicircular formation to meet the new danger. A rapid charge disconcerted the Persian archers, and in the hand-to-hand -hand struggle which followed, the enemy suffered severely. Lack of provisions, however, tortured the Roman army during the three days' truce which ensued. When the march was resumed, Julian learned of an attack upon his rear. Unarmed, he galloped to the threatened point, but was recalled to the defence of the vanguard. At the same time, the elephants and cavalry had burst upon the centre, but were already in flight when a horseman's spear grazed the emperor's arm and pierced his ribs. None knew whence the weapon came, though rumour ran that a Christian fanatic had assassinated his general, while others said that a tribesman of the Taini had dealt the fatal blow. In vain, Julian essayed to return to the field of battle. His soldiers magnificently avenged their emperor, but he could not share their victory. Within his tent, he calmly reviewed the past, and on complaining, yielded his life into the keeping of the eternal Godhead. In medio corsu florentium glorianum hunc merui clarum e mundo digressum. Death in mercy claimed Julian. The impatient reformer and champion of a creed outworn might have become the embittered persecutor. Rightly or wrongly, after generations would know him as the great apostate, but he was spared the shame of being numbered among the tyrants. He was born out of due time, and therein lay the tragedy of his troubled existence. For long years he dared not discover the passionate desires which lay nearest his heart, and when at length he could give them expression, there were few or none fully to understand or sympathise. His work died with him, and soon, like a little cloud blown by the wind, left not a trace behind. The next day, at early dawn, the heads of the army and the principal officers assembled to choose an emperor. Partisans of Julian struggled with followers of Constantius. The armies of the West schemed against the nominee of the legions of the East. Christianity and paganism each sought its own champion. All were, however, prepared to sink their differences in favour of Sallust. But when he pleaded ill health and advanced age, a small but tumultuous faction carried the election of Jovian, the captain of the Imperial Guard. Down the long line of troops ran the Emperor's name, and some thought from the sound half heard that Julian was restored to them. They were undeceived at the sight of the meagre purple robe, which hardly served to cover the vast height and bent shoulders of their new ruler. Chosen as a whole-hearted adherent of Christianity, Jovian was by nature genial and jocular, a gourmand and lover of wine and women, a man of kindly disposition and very moderate education. The army, by its choice, had foredoomed itself to dishonour. Its excuse, pleads Ammianus, lay in the extreme urgency of the crisis. The Persians, learning of Julian's death and of the incapacity of his successor, pressed hard upon the retreating Romans. Charges of the enemy's elephants broke the ranks of the legionaries while on the march, and when the army halted, their entrenched camp was constantly attacked. Saracen horsemen took their revenge for Julian's refusal to give them their customary pay by joining in these unceasing assaults. By way of Sumer, Charcha, and Dara, the army retired, and then for four whole days the enemy harassed the rearguard, 
always declining an engagement when the Romans turned at bay. The troops clamoured to be allowed to cross the Tigris. On the further bank they would find provisions and fewer foes, but the generals feared the dangers of the swollen stream. Another two days passed, days of gnawing hunger and scorching heat. At last Sapor sent Serenus with proposals of peace. The king knew that Roman forces still remained in Mesopotamia, and that new regiments could easily be raised in the eastern provinces. Desperate men will sell their lives dearly, and diplomacy might win a less costly victory than the sword. Four days the negotiations continued, and then when suspense had become intolerable, the thirty years' peace was signed. All but one of the five satrapies, which Rome and Diocletian had wrested from Persia, were to be restored, Nisibis and Singara were to be surrendered, while the Romans were no longer to interfere in the internal affairs of Armenia. We ought to have fought ten times over, cries the soldier Amian, rather than to have granted such terms as these. But Jervian desired, by what means it mattered not, to retain a force which should secure him against rivals. Was not Procopius, who men said had been marked out by Julian as his successor, at the head of an army in Mesopotamia? Thus the shameful bargain was struck, and the miserable retreat continued. To the horrible privations of the march were added Persian treachery and the bitter hostility of the Saracen tribesmen. At Thilsafata the troops under Sebastianus and Procopius joined the army, and at length Nisibis was reached, the fortress which had been Rome's bulwark in the east since the days of Mithridates. The citizens prayed with tears that they might be allowed single-handed to defend the walls against the might of Persia, but Jervian was too good a Christian to break his faith with Sapor, and Benises, a Persian noble, occupied the city in the name of his master. Procopius, who had been content to acknowledge Jovian, now bore the corpse of Julian to Tarsus for burial, and then his mission accomplished, prudently disappeared. The army in Gaul accepted the choice of their eastern comrades, but Jervian's success was short-lived. In the depth of winter, he hurried from Antioch towards Constantinople, and with his infant son, Varonianus, assumed the consulship at Ansara. At Dadastana, he was found dead in his bedroom, 16th February, 364, suffocated, some said, by the fumes of a charcoal stove. Many versions of his death were current, but apparently no contemporary suspected other than natural causes. On his accession, the pagan party had looked for persecution, the Christians for the hour of their retaliation. But though the Christian faith was restored as the religion of the empire, Jovian's wisdom or good nature triumphed, and he issued an edict of toleration. He had thereby anticipated the policy of his successor. End of section 10